In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says something through the prophet that is well worth our consideration and meditation. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God makes well-being, peace, harmony. The, the Hebrew word there is shalom. That we know. To that we say, Amen. It's the other part that we don't know what to do with. I make well-being and create calamity. Calamity is a fine translation for this word ra. But whatever is the opposite of of shalom, peace, well-being, that is what is in view here. We're talking about the opposite of shalom. If you're reading from a KJV or something like that, you might be thrown off this morning because it says some variation of, I make good and create evil. Now, that's not the best translation because, for one, it makes it sound like God is the author of evil, which Scripture clearly rejects in other places. And second, the words in the original language are much more complex than these simple categories of good and evil. So what is God saying in this? I make well-being and create calamity. Or another translation that I quite like says it this way because here's why I like it, because it makes for a good sermon title. It says, I make weal and woe. What do we make of this? This verse is unsettling. There was an early church heretic named Marcion who used this verse as a proof text for his false teaching that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. There was another heretical group early on in the church. They still exist today. They were called the Gnostics. And they suggested that this was not God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in this passage, but this is an evil, vindictive God called the Demiurge. I don't know why I threw that in there. I thought that that was some interesting tidbits. But all that to say is that these guys didn't know what to do with this verse. And so they created these ridiculous false teachings to try to explain away the clear meaning of the passage. So what do we do with it? And how do we understand it in the context of what Isaiah is communicating? Here's why I think it's a good question for us to wrestle with. We must wrestle with this given some, uh, given some of what's going on in the world and in our personal lives. Calamity is pervasive throughout the world. Have you guys turned on your news lately? Scrolled through your social media? There is misfortune, unshalom everywhere. Warfare, wildfires and droughts, earthquakes, tornadoes, you name it. And that's just a thumbnail of what's going on in the world at any given time. And it's hard enough to worry about all that stuff when you've got warfare, earthquakes, and tornadoes in your own life. How do we make sense of any of it, because this isn't just about the problem of evil. 
Whenever it comes to the problem of evil, the question there at the heart of that is, how can a good God allow suffering or calamity? I'm not even going there today. This question is more profound. How can a good God use suffering or calamity? You see, that's what this verse is teaching. As strange as that is. Though God is not the author of evil, He can and does use it for His purposes. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. You're normal. There are verses like this that we read in the Scriptures and we realize that this God who we are dealing with is unlike any other and He does not fit neatly into the boxes which we've created for Him. He's not a God who's, he, he's not a God who's going to be tamed by our notions of what is civilized and what should be a presentable God. We find that we... We don't and we can't know everything about God nor His mysterious purposes. Later on in the chapter, Isaiah 45, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and mark it. Verse 15, Isaiah 45 verse 15 says, Surely you are a God who hides Himself. So when we talk about the hidden God, we are talking, we're not, being Martian, we're not being Marcion from the early church who said that's a different God. We are talking about the same God who has redeemed us through the precious blood of Christ. But we are talking about this aspect of Him that He has not revealed to us. Something about Him that we cannot know. And we can follow that up with the adage. It's an adage for a reason. It's a famous saying, people fear what they do not know. That certainly applies here. The reason that the notion of a God who uses evil and calamity, that unsettles us because it means that this is a God that we cannot control. A God who does not answer to us. It means that, in fact, this is a God who is in control of everything and is active, working in, with, and under all the events of human history. And if He is active and working in, with, and under the events of human history, then that means that He has worked even amid warfare and bloodshed. Even amid earthquakes and tornadoes, even through illnesses and diseases, poverty and pandemics, you name it. What exactly is he doing behind the scenes? I don't know. This is the hidden God we're talking about. You see, when we talk about the hidden God, or we meditate on the hidden God, it is like staring into the abyss. We try to make sense of things that we are woefully incapable of doing. And for some of us, it drives us to despair. For others, it becomes a reason to hate God. Why? 
Because they are attempting to grasp at God in His hiddenness. They look out at the state of the world and they do the math. They say, if your God is the God of calamity, the God of weal and woe, then I want nothing to do with Him. They've met the hidden God and they can't comprehend Him. So they need someone to come and preach the revealed God to them. The same God, mind you, but the one who reveals himself in specific ways. Indeed, we need someone to preach the revealed God to us. Because that's the only way that we're going to have the peace, the shalom, the well-being that this same God gives to us. You see, in the calamities and, and in the misfortune and in the suffering of the world and of our lives, God remains hidden to us and we cannot know exactly what He's doing. But in God's Word and in His sacraments, God is revealed. And His purposes for us and for our salvation become clear. His plan, church, is to save us. And whatever events He must use to do so, He will. In Isaiah, we're given an example of this in the life of God's people. When Isaiah writes these words, in less than 200 years, Judah was going to know great calamity as they would be besieged by Babylon as punishment for generations of continued rebellion against God. God was actually going to use a nation far more wicked than they were to punish them. Here we see a God who is moving chess pieces on the board. We see the hidden God who is terrifying because we cannot know and we cannot comprehend Him, this God we cannot control. What do you mean, God, that you would use this far more wicked nation to punish your people? But then in Isaiah 45, our text today, God speaks through the prophet into the future to name a Persian king as his chosen instrument of salvation. You see, despite their self-imposed calamity, because that's what this was, they brought this on themselves, God had a plan to deliver them. He had a different kind of plan. You know, in the past, whenever God would deliver his people, he would raise up somebody from within their midst, right? Like the judges that God anointed to deliver his salvation to his people over and over again. Or when God's people needed aid and protection from some kind of uh, you know, foreign threat or an oppressive enemy, God would raise up his chosen from among them. As in Moses, the Hebrew shepherd, chosen by God to bring his people out of slavery. Or how about young King David, God's anointed king. God's anointed king from Bethlehem who defeated Goliath and delivered Israel. Right? Somebody from within their midst. But this time was different. And God was calling his shot almost 200 years in advance. 
In chapter 44, God said that this pagan king of Persia, Cyrus, was to be his shepherd. His shepherd who would fulfill his purposes. If you're an Israelite, that's shocking and scandalous. Now imagine what they must be thinking whenever God calls Cyrus his anointed one in chapter 45. His anointed one. You know what anointed one means? Messiah. In the Greek, Christ. Get your mind around that for a second. King Cyrus II, who wouldn't even know and wouldn't even worship the God of Israel, the God of all creation, was going to be used by God to direct the course of human history, simultaneously bringing judgment upon the wicked nation of Babylon and salvation to God's people by liberating them and by returning them to Jerusalem. God was going to grab Cyrus by the right hand, and here's what he was going to do in our text, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. In other words, to, to, uh, to disempower all the kings, to take off their armor, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. God would go before him and level the exalted places and he would break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. So, my translation, through Cyrus, God was going to kick some tail. What exactly happened nearly 200 years later after Isaiah prophesied these words? In 539 BC, Cyrus's general surrounded the city of Babylon and the priests submitted. And they hailed him as Marduk's, their God's chosen king. They opened their city gates and they allowed them to come right in. Not too long after, God's people got to go home. You see, God is in control of all the events of human history. Nothing happens apart from his say-so. In much of it, church, we cannot understand. We cannot know how it all fits together. That's why we don't pry into his hidden will. That which he has not revealed to us. That's why instead we go to what we know. What he has revealed. In the case of Cyrus, God called his shot and he told his people exactly what he was doing so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel. And for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. God was doing what he was doing so that Israel, Cyrus, and the world would know that there is no other God. There is no equal and opposite force competing with God. Satan doesn't hold a candle. He has to get God's permission to do stuff, as we see in the book of Job. God is always in control. And he does so for the sake of his people and their salvation. So when we look at the calamities in our world and in our lives and we are driven to despair and sorrow, 
through our questioning about why God would permit such things, we are attempting to look at the hidden God. We are staring into the abyss. Instead, we must look at God where he is revealed. We focus on what we do know, what God has said. In Christ, the God who makes well-being and creates calamity is revealed as the one who orders all the events of the universe for us and for our salvation. You see, Cyrus, Cyrus was anointed as God's chosen king just for a specific time in history. But Jesus, Jesus was named the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, forever and into eternity to deliver us from sin, death, and the devil through his death and his resurrection. Cyrus walked into the gates of Babylon to free God's people. But Jesus descended into hell to break open its gates and to free us. And he has ascended to the throne from which he reigns over all things, good or bad, for the, for the sake of his elect, his chosen, you and me. And through his word, Jesus tells you, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. He gives those keys to his church for binding and for loosing, for setting people free from sin, death, and the devil through the word of the gospel and the sacraments where God is revealed as the one who saves us. He holds everything, everything in his hands. He moves everything in all of history and all of its events forward not so that we would be destroyed and perish like the wicked nations of Assyria or Babylon, but so that we will be preserved, kept safe in his sovereign hands, and finally found in Christ on the last day when his glory will be revealed in the sight of the nations. When you look out at the world and you see only calamity. When you look at your life and you see only misfortune, you have a God who has revealed his purposes to you. He hasn't told you the details about how he, was, he is working in all those things, but he has told you what he is accomplishing through them. He's doing it all to save you. He is doing it to bring you to himself. To grant you peace, shalom, well-being. You can look at all of it. All of it. And you can say that God has bent everything in the universe towards my salvation. You don't believe me? Let's do a thought experiment. God raised up Cyrus to preserve his people. He preserved his people to give you Jesus. 
No Cyrus, no Jesus, no salvation. See? Everything. All of it, according to plan. All of it for your salvation. Look to the revealed God who has it all under control. Who in Christ has taken you by the hand so that you would know that he is God and there is none other besides him. And you are his chosen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.